together these four titles, uh, they're more titles than they are names in, t- in terms of personal names, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. They paint the ideal picture of the ideal king. This was the kind of king that the Lord wanted for his people, not only because it would be best for them, but because this is the kind of king that perfectly reveals himself. The Lord is the true king, not just of Israel, but of all creation. So these titles were applied to earthly kings insofar as they were to point people to the Lord, the true king. They were to be the image of God to the people. But they did this best only as they saw themselves as vice-regents. They lived under his authority. The first title we saw last week was Wonderful Counselor. This is a king who was imaged by Solomon, full of wisdom and knowledge, able to bring wise and fair judgments for his people. And we saw that in Christ we have all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. Because in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We saw that from Colossians 2. This idea of uh, wisdom and knowledge was conveyed by the word counsellor, but the adjective wonderful means he is the counsellor to end all counsellors. He not only conveys the wisdom of God, he is the wisdom of God embodied. Well, that was last week. This week, we look at the second title, Mighty God. Now, this word translated mighty, uh, the Hebrew word is gibor, and it's most commonly used to describe a military commander or a warrior. And the word for God is the word el, E-L, And combined with Gabor, so El Gabor is the Hebrew title, it paints a picture of a warrior king who's successful in defeating his enemies. And this king who would be given this title, El Gabor, it was clear that it was actually God himself who was fighting through him. His victory was actually God's victory. To oppose him would be to oppose God himself. He is God's representative bringing justice to the earth. It's through this king that God expresses his own kingship in protecting his people from their enemies. Now, Isaiah was prophesying, at least in this part of Isaiah, just before the northern kingdom of Israel was swept away by Assyria. And Isaiah goes on to warn the people of Judah that they shouldn't be complacent. The same fate will one day face them at the hands of the Babylonians. But one of the more scathing criticisms that came through Isaiah and the other prophets was 
the criticism of Israel and Judah's leaders, their kings and their government officials. While idolatry was rife throughout the people, the people were worshipping idols, the kings held responsibility before God for that, for the state of the worship in the land. It was their role to ensure there was purity of worship. So forgetting the Lord and turning to idols and false gods is frequently cited as the reason why he eventually gave his people over to be invaded by and to be oppressed by the surrounding nations. See how Isaiah describes Israel and Judah's leaders uh, a little bit before this passage in chapter 5. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes of drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. The word heroes there in verse 22 is the same word that's used for mighty in the term mighty God in 9 verse 6. The leaders of Israel and Judah were called to be heroes in defending their people, protecting them from their enemies, but instead the only thing they had to boast about was how great they were at getting drunk. This is a picture of corrupt leadership, revelling in their power and their affluence, but they're unconcerned with the welfare of the people. So when their enemies finally come to attack, they're drunk and useless. Isaiah tells us that by contrast, the Lord steps in to be the hero the mighty warrior for his people. Later in the book, Isaiah gives prophecies that are to be for the people of Judah when they are in exile in Babylon. And as they are hearing the promises of their eventual return to the land. So in verse chapter 42, the Lord goes out like a mighty man. Like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal, he cries out, he shouts aloud, he shows himself mighty against his foes. And then he's speaking here, For a long time I have held my peace, I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labour, I will gasp and pant, I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation, I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up their pools, and I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. This is the Lord promising to to take hold of his broken, dejected people in exile in Babylon and to pick them up and to bring them back to the land 
Where Judah's kings and leaders have failed miserably, the Lord himself will fight for his people. But how will he do it? Well, Isaiah 9.6 tells us it will be through this child to be born, through this son to be given. He will be called the mighty God. So the word there in verse 13, the Lord goes out like a mighty man, is that same word. It's important for us to see that while Judah's return from exile 70 years after 70 years in Babylon, it was a wonderful event, but they never experienced a full emancipation, a full freedom. They remained under the thumb of the Persians. They'd been allowed to return, but the king of Persia was still over them. After Persia came the Greeks. After the Greeks came the Romans. They never knew the freedom of being a sovereign nation like they were back in the days of David and Solomon and the early kings. So they were forced to keep looking forward, to still wait for this son mentioned in Isaiah 9, 6, this son who would be born, who would be mighty God, who would deliver them from all of their enemies. Now when we look at the birth of Jesus, we might struggle initially to see how he could be this fulfilment of the mighty God not just the birth of Jesus, all of his life and ministry. The ruler of the time, King Herod, he was the epitome of the corrupt, drunkard rulers that Isaiah described. Within a short time of Jesus being born, what did King Herod do? Well, he called good evil and evil good. He called light darkness and darkness light when he ordered the slaughter of children who were supposed to be under his care just to try and kill Jesus and his family. Through Jesus' ministry, he constantly stifled his, his disciples' desire to be part of a violent revolution. They wanted to throw out the Romans and install him as this mighty king, powerful king. He said no. Then at the end of his life we see him captured, mocked, beaten and crucified by evil, powerful, corrupt rulers, the Romans, at the instigation of the Jewish leaders. So it seems to be that he's hardly the mighty man of war that Isaiah seems to be describing. Well, to properly understand how Jesus fulfills this promise, we need to look at Revelation 19 that we heard read from Wendy. To give some context, I, uh, I started at verse 6. Let's, let's hear this passage again. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. 
It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. For this hymn, sung by the great multitude of God's redeemed people, celebrates the reign, the victory of our God, the same language of mighty God, his triumph over evil. But this victory feast is also a wedding feast between his son, the Lamb, and the bride, the church. The goal of his victory is relationship, a perfect union between God and his people, Christ and the church. If you've ever been to a wedding, I'm sure we all have, um, it's kind of tradition that the best man stands up and says some kind words about the groom and others will stand up and talk about the bride and it might be funny stories, uh, it might just be saying I think they're a wonderful person. Well at uh, a king's wedding in the ancient world uh, all of his mighty acts of valour and victory would be recounted and that's what's happening here. But notice that the bride is dressed in bright and pure linen. They are the righteous deeds of the saints. But these righteous deeds, notice, are granted her to clothe herself. The deeds are not earning a righteousness. They're an expression of the righteousness that's already hers. But see how these deeds of the saints are what makes the bride beautiful. And it's the cause of the bridegroom's rejoicing over her. The next verses then describe the bridegroom. Initially he's the lamb and this bridegroom is coming to receive his bride. But when he looks, he's heard about the lamb, but then he looks, he sees an image that's quite different. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True and in righteousness he judges and makes war. It's the language of Isaiah there. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, are following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So as I said, see how verse 11 there uses the language of Isaiah 42 that we saw earlier. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. So we've been told to be ready for the marriage of the Lamb, but what do we see? We see a mighty one 
on a white horse riding in victory. This mighty one has at least three names, faithful and true, the word of God and king of kings and lord of lords. These are titles that are given to Jesus in his role as Messiah. But he has another name that's beyond our knowledge. No one knows but himself. To know a person's name in the ancient world meant having some kind of access into their world, their life, because their name would sum up who they are as a person. Unlike today, we just give our children names because we like the sound of it. But normally a name would be given because it meant something and it was to sum up who they were. To give someone your name would make you vulnerable, vulnerable to being exploited or controlled unless, unless your name communicates that you hold absolute power and authority. So the use of names in this passage is significant. To put it simply, we could say that his three revealed names show us that he is mighty. As our King and Lord, he is faithful and true. He is the embodiment and the finality of God's word to us. And then his secret name tells us that he is God. In him is the mystery of the fullness of God dwelling in a man. How can we understand that. We can't. It's a mystery. He's brought the vastness and unapproachableness of God down to a tangible, touchable, viewable flesh and bone reality, the mystery of God in human flesh. This mighty God wears a robe dipped in blood which in a military context, as this is, would mean it's the blood of his defeated enemies. But remember, this one riding the white horse is also the lamb. Earlier in the book, he's called the lamb who was slain. This isn't the blood of his enemies. This is his own blood. The victory he has is because, as Revelation 5.9 says, you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The death of Jesus, the shedding of his blood was the great battle between him and our three great enemies of sin, death and the devil. His victory over these enemies was affirmed when the Father raised him from the dead and gave him all authority in heaven and earth, declaring him in effect to be Isaiah 9's mighty God, the king who is victorious in battle, who has fought for his people and won. Just as the image of Jesus has shifted from lamb to warrior, so the image of the church has shifted from bride to army. 
verse 14. That's us. See, still clothed in pure linen, but we're riding on white horses just like our commander-in-chief, Jesus. We share, our, we share his victory. Our union with him means that our destiny, like him, is to reign. We will reign with him over creation. Now, sadly, in the past, this, this image of Jesus as a warrior and the church as an army in the past has been used by so-called Christian nations to use military might to invade and to conquer and to colonise. And that's probably why this imagery is not all that popular in the modern world or in the church. We don't tend to sing hymns anymore of Christ as the conquering king or of the church as the army. I suspect it's this verse that our brothers and sisters in the Salvation Army get their name for their movement. We, we like to think God is a pacifist, don't we? But a pacifist in the way that we think of pacifism. But notice where the sword of this rider, of this commander-in-chief of the armies of heaven, where his sword is. It's not in his hand, it's coming out of his mouth. The sword is his word. He both strikes down the nations and rules them not with military might but with the power and authority of his word. So we see Christ expressing his reign in the world not as so-called Christian nations divide and conquer but as the gospel, the good news, the word of the kingdom the declaration, your God reigns, Jesus is Lord, as that word goes out and reaches every tribe and tongue and nation. Christ conquers and reigns as the gospel is heard and believed. And as those who believe cry out, Jesus is Lord and submit to him as their ruler. This title, however, doesn't only have a spiritual application in that sense. John's vision of Jesus as mighty God causes us also to look forward as the Jews did in Isaiah's time to the day when, as Revelation 11 puts it, the kingdom of this world, the world, has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. There will be a time when Jesus, the mighty God, will be revealed in all his power and glory. All the rulers of this world will fall before him to acknowledge him as the king of kings. All who oppose him will be cast down and cast out. Every injustice on the face of the earth will be made right. And God's people from every age who have called out to God for justice, for mercy, 
will finally be vindicated as they ride with him on those white horses. Not literally, but that's the picture. God's people will be saved, will be vindicated. There will no longer be any more injustice and suffering and pain. To frame it in the wedding imagery of of Revelation 19, we can say that the church is now living in the engagement period of our relationship with Christ. But the wedding day is coming when he will come in his victorious power and take us to be with himself and we will be united with him forever. We've called these four Sundays in December an Advent series because it coincides with the season of Advent observed by uh, many churches around the world. Advent starts on the fourth Sunday before Christmas. So we got it right by starting last week on December the 1st. But what many people don't know is that Advent is both the beginning of a new church year, celebration of leading up into Christmas, but it's also the conclusion of the church year. Because it looks both back to the coming of Jesus at his birth and forward to his second coming. It's a celebration that recognises that the child born in Isaiah 9 is the mighty God who will return on the day of the Lord. His coming as a child laid in a manger is a guarantee that he'll also come in the clouds of glory. That he was seen by only a few in his earthly life will be seen by every eye and every tongue will worship him. The one who entered into this creation in humility will on that day release creation from its decay and its futility into the freedom of the glory of the children of God, us. So we're going to close with a hymn that many assume is a Christmas carol but in fact it's an Advent hymn. It's actually a hymn about the day of Jesus' return. As we sing it, you'll see that it speaks not of things that happened at the first Christmas, but of things that will happen when he returns. Joy to the world. Let's stand and sing.